Many people, perhaps the majority of people in our land, think little about the real source of the tremendous blessings that we have enjoyed in the United States over the past 200 years. And similar blessings have been enjoyed in Great Britain and, and countries settled by the British and other nations inhabited predominantly in modern times by the descendants of Abraham. These blessings have spilled over into many other countries as well. And through blessings promised to Abraham and to his descendants, all nations have been blessed. This is true not only from a spiritual standpoint, but to a degree it includes physical blessings as well. One blessing in particular that we need to take notice of is favorable weather. It's been said that people are always talking about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. In today's sermon, I want to discuss the question, can anything be done about the weather? Even though many take their blessings for granted, there is a God in heaven who, despite our sins and weaknesses, has blessed the United States and Great Britain in particular, making it possible for us to enjoy the unprecedented wealth, conveniences, and power that these nations have enjoyed over the past 200 plus years. God promised Abraham that his descendants would reap great blessings because of Abraham's faithfulness and obedience. God said to Abraham, or Abram as he was named at the time, in Genesis 12 and verse 2, Genesis 12 and verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now notice here that God said that those who bless the nation, God would raise up out of Abraham with themselves to be blessed, and those who cursed that nation would be cursed. In Genesis 22 and verse 16, we read, Genesis 22 and verse 16, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you, Abraham, have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Notice that it was because Abraham had obeyed God's voice that his descendants were to be blessed and that the nations were to be blessed through him. The blessings of Abraham were passed on to his descendants through uh, his son, Isaac. We read in Genesis 26 and verse 1, Genesis 26 and verse 1, there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to, your, to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now notice again that the blessings were to be given not because of the righteousness of Abraham's descendants, namely the people of Israel, but because Abraham obeyed God's commandments. The blessings promised to Abraham were passed from Isaac through Jacob or Israel and his descendants. In part, the blessing included, as we read in Genesis 27 and verse 28, Genesis 27 and verse 28, 
The blessings included the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Now, these are specific physical blessings that were promised to Abraham's descendants. The dew of heaven, of course, in this context, implies sufficient water to produce abundant crops. In other words, favorable weather. Later, God warned the descendants of Israel about their conduct and attitudes upon receiving the blessing in store for them because of Abraham's obedience. And he warned them not, he warned them in Deuteronomy 8, beginning with verse 17, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, he warned them not to say in your heart, my power and might of my hand have gained me this wealth, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So they were not to begin thinking that it, that it was because of their genius or their extraordinary abilities or their righteousness and so forth that they were receiving the blessings, the wealth that was to accrue to them, but God wanted them to remember that it is he who gave them that wealth, that he gave them the power to obtain the wealth. Now, they had their part to play in it, of course, but it was God who made it possible, who ultimately gave them that gift. Among the blessings promised, as indicated above, were agricultural blessings, the blessings of favorable weather leading to abundant produce from fields and pastures. If they would be faithful to his covenant, God promised the descendants of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, or 28 rather, Deuteronomy 28, beginning with verse 11, he promised them, the people of Israel, the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the increase of your livestock and in the produce of your ground, in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you, the Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season. So they were to receive the blessings again of favorable weather, land in, or, or uh, rain in due season. In a prophecy for the last days that we find in Genesis 49, this prophecy was for the latter days, in, our, in other words, our age today, Jacob or Israel prophesied of the descendants of Joseph, his son Joseph, who comprised the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. The two sons of Joseph were Ephraim and Manasseh. And these blessings were to be handed down to these peoples the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh. And so we read in Genesis 49, verse 22, Genesis 49, verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. Now this is uh, an indication of great abundance. Abundance perhaps in not only agricultural produce, but other types of abundance as well and riches. Going on in verse 25 of Genesis 49, uh, also speaking of Joseph here, the sons of Joseph, the, the children of Joseph or his descendants through Ephraim and Manasseh, by the God of your father who will help you and by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. So included in the blessings pronounced on the head of Joseph were blessings of heaven above, again indicating favorable weather, would be among the blessings given to the descendants of Joseph or Ephraim and Manasseh. In verse 26 of Genesis 49, going on with the blessings pronounced on the head of Joseph, it says, the blessings of your father 
have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Or as translated in the Greens, literal translation, which I believe is a better translation, Greens literal translation, Genesis 49, verse 26, the blessings of your father are above the blessings of my offspring. In other words, the blessings of Joseph were to excel over those of his other descendants in certain respects. To the limit of everlasting hills, may they be for the head of Joseph and for the crown of the leader of his brothers. Remember Joseph in uh, in Egypt became the leader of the brothers. And so the, although all of the sons of uh, Jacob were to be blessed abundantly, the blessings given to Ephraim and Manasseh were to be the greatest of all of those peoples. Without going into the details, various lines of evidence indicate that Ephraim is represented in modern times by the British-descended peoples of Great Britain and her former colonies, including Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. And many of those details have been provided in books that have been written over the years. Among those books, The United States and the British Commonwealth and Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong, and there have been other similar books written that go into the details of evidence concerning the modern-day identity of Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim has been identified as being represented by the peoples of, of Great, the people of Great Britain and those other countries where the British uh, migrated to and colonized, including Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, which were all at one time part of the British Commonwealth of Nations. And there were some a few others too, such as Rhodesia and so forth, smaller colonies. But that does not mean, of course, that every citizen of those countries was a descendant of Ephraim, but the British did colonize those countries and they became key components of the British Empire and later the Commonwealth. In a similar manner, the descendants of Manasseh are represented in modern times by the United States. Now, massive immigration in recent decades into Britain and the United States of other peoples from various parts of the world has diluted the percentage of the population in those countries representing the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And this was prophesied to happen as well. As we read in Hosea 7, beginning with verse 8, Hosea 7 and verse 8, Ephraim mixed himself among the peoples. This is a prophecy for our time. Ephraim is a cake not turned. A cake not turned, this expression indicates something weak or worthless. Once the most powerful and influential nation in the world, Britain has become relatively weak and impotent in today's world. And it goes on to say in verse 9 of Hosea 7, Strangers have eaten up his strength, yet he does not know. He does not know how weak he has become. Yea, gray hairs are sprinkled here and there on him, yet he does not know. I might mention too, concerning South Africa, South Africa has never been predominantly British in terms of population numbers. Nevertheless, the Union of South Africa was formed in 1910 by the uniting of four previously separate British colonies. Territories of which it was composed were largely dominated by the British, not necessarily in terms of population numbers, but in terms of, of uh, influence and 
control by the government, which was under the uh, control of the British, and also actually uh, exceeding the British in terms of numbers were the descendants of Dutch settlers and French Huguenots in South Africa. And yet Britain dominated the area for a couple of centuries or more. Some of that time, the Dutch and the uh, the the Dutch settlers, the uh, people called the Fortrekkers, were in control of certain areas. But from an overall standpoint, especially after 1910, or earlier than that, actually, the British were in control. And South Africa was rich in mineral resources, and despite its relatively dry climate, was agriculturally productive and to a degree still is today. South Africa left the British Empire in 1961, became independent of uh, Great Britain at that time. So God promised abundant blessings to the Israelites and especially to the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh in the last days, that is the period leading up to the return of Jesus Christ in, in this particular context. Included in those promises, those blessings, were blessings of produce, of crops, of livestock, dependent on favorable weather. In their heyday, these nations, nations of the United States and the British Commonwealth, were dominant in agricultural production. And to an extent, they still are. More than half the cultivable temperate zone lands in the world came into the possession of Great Britain and the United States after 1800. And at the height of their dominance, the nations of the British Empire or Commonwealth and the United States produced well over half the world's supply of sheep and wool, and about a quarter of the world's supply of foodstuffs, including milk, cheese, butter, and beef. And there are several factors that have made this dominance in agricultural output possible, but one of the key factors is climate and favorable weather. Nations that suffer prolonged periods of drought or a succession of devastating floods or weather that is unseasonably cool for too long or widespread disruptive weather disasters such as hurricanes will suffer in lost agricultural production and other calamities that may in extreme cases lead to famine and ruin. Despite drought-stricken areas here and there and periods of too much rain or too little rain, occasional hurricanes, wildfires, and so forth, the world's climate in recent history has been actually relatively stable and predictable. The world as a whole today is not facing a food crisis. In fact, in recent decades, the world's food supply is outpacing the growth in population by a significant percentage. In 1996, for example, the world was producing 24% more food per person than it was in 1961. 24% more food per, per person. Even though the world population had grown, the amount of food per person had increased by almost 25% based on United Nations statistics. And this is from a, an article entitled, With Tongue-in-Cheek, The Dwindling World Food Supply, written in September of the year 2000. It goes on to say, quote, starvation is not imminent. The average citizen of the world today is better fed than at any time in recorded history. 
and the situation is getting better and better every year. Chicken Little and Al Gore, Al Gore are wrong, end of quote. Now, I might mention in passing here, it says the average citizen of the world is better fed, and uh, what that means is in terms of quantity of food available, it doesn't necessarily mean quality, and that's not really what I'm discussing today because there, there is a... Uh, uh, there, there, there is a discussion that could be had concerning the quality of the food available, but certainly the quantity of food that is available today worldwide is more than perhaps at any time in recorded history. Currently in this year, 2018, measured in economic value, the world's largest food producer is China followed closely by the United States, and then those two countries followed by India and Brazil. Those are the four uh, most prolific food-producing countries in the world in terms of uh, economic value. Having much larger populations, China and India consume a much larger percentage of the food they produce than does the United States. And a much larger percentage of the population of those countries is employed in food production. For example, in China, according to 2017 statistics published by the World Bank, 18% of China's population is directly involved in uh, in agricultural, that is, they're employed in food production, in agricultural um, production or farming or raising livestock, whatever. 18% of the population in China. In India, it is, according to the World Bank in 2017, 43% of the population in India is directly involved in agriculture. In the United States, it is 2%. 2% of the population is involved in direct food production in the United States. But the United States is the world's largest exporter of agricultural products, and much of its agricultural economy is geared to exports. In discussing what can be done about the weather, I think I would be remiss if I did not discuss the controversial subject of climate change, which is often discussed these days. We might ask, what, is, what exactly is weather? Weather is defined in Britannica Concise Dictionary as, quote, the state of the atmosphere at a particular place during a short period of time the state of the atmosphere at a particular place during a short period of time. Climate, in the same source, is defined as, quote, the condition of the atmosphere at a particular location over a long period of time that could be anywhere from one month to millions of years, but is generally around 30 years. <clears throat> so the... The two are, of course, closely linked, but weather is, is the, are the conditions over a short period of time of, of uh, perhaps a day or a few days. Climate is a longer period of time in terms of atmospheric conditions. It's been hysterically reported in the media now for several decades that climate change is a direct threat to mankind and that drastic measures must be taken immediately to avoid catastrophe, to avoid the catastrophe that will certainly occur within a certain number of years and that number of years keeps changing. But this is what has been widely reported in the media now for several decades.
It's been claimed by Al Gore, many media outlets, and other supporters of the climate change agenda that virtually all scientists have agreed with their conclusions that the climate is changing in a way that requires drastic action now to avoid catastrophe because it's the burning of fossil fuels and the raising of livestock and other such actions of mankind that is responsible for the putative climate change threatening the earth. Anyone who dares question such claims is attacked as a denier and may be punished in other ways. The fact is, like the weather from day to day and week to week, the climate is in a constant state of flux. In other words, the, the climate is always changing, and sometimes it's getting warmer and sometimes it's getting cooler. But the key question, is the burning of fossil fuels and grazing of cows threatening the environment with disaster and threatening millions of human beings with untimely deaths as the alarmist claim? Christopher Booker, author of the book, The Real Climate Change Catastrophe, wrote in an article published in the London Sunday Telegraph on October 25th, 2009. And in the article, he summarizes the history of climate change, alarmism, over a 30-year period. Although it's often claimed that the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the IPCC, represents the research of thousands of the world's top climate experts, Booker comments, quote, one of the more startling features of the IPCC is just how few scientists have been centrally involved in guiding its findings, end of quote. Near the end of the article, Booker states, quote, no one has put the reality of the situation more succinctly than Professor Richard Linson of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, one of the most distinguished climatologists in the world, who has done as much as anyone in the past 20 years to expose the emptiness of the IPCC's claim that its, re its reports represent a consensus of the views of the world's top scientists. Professor Linson wrote, quote, this is quoting Professor Richard Linson of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, future generations will wonder in bemused amazement that the early 21st century's developed world went into hysterical panic over a globally averaged temperature increase of a few tenths of a degree and on the basis of gross exaggerations of highly exaggerated computer predictions combined into implausible chains of inference proceeded to contemplate a rollback of the industrial age. And this is the end of his quote going on with Booker's comments in this article. He says, such is the truly extraordinary position in which we find ourselves thanks to misreading the significance of a brief period of rising temperatures at the end of the 20th century, the Western world, but not India or China, is now contemplating measures that add up to the most expensive economic suicide note ever written. How long will it be before sanity and sound science break in on what begins to look like one of the most bizarre collective delusions ever to grip the human race? End quote. Dr. Vincent Gray, a member of the UN IPCC expert reviewers panel since its inception, wrote a letter objecting to its deceptive methods published in March of 2008. And in it, Dr. Gray makes these comments, quote, I have been forced to the conclusion that for, the signif for significant parts of the work of the IPCC, the data collection and scientific methods employed are unsound. Resistance to all efforts to try and discuss or rectify these problems has convinced me that normal scientific procedures are not only rejected by the IPCC, 
that this, that this practice is endemic and was part of the organization from the very beginning. I therefore consider that the IPCC is fundamentally corrupt. The only reform I could envision, envisage would be its abolition. He goes on to say, quote, the two main scientific claims of the IPCC are the claim that the globe is warming and increases in carbon dioxide emissions are responsible. Evidence for both of these claims is fatally flawed, end of quote. In the year 2007, over 400 scientists disputing man-made global warming claims were identified in a U.S. Senate report. A summary of the report stated, quote, over 400 prominent scientists from more than two dozen countries recently voiced significant objections to major aspects of the so-called consensus on man-made global warming. These scientists, many of whom are current and former participants in the UNIPCC, criticized the climate claims made by the UNIPCC and former Vice President Al Gore. Many of the scientists featured in this report consistently stated that numerous colleagues shared their view but they will not speak out publicly for fear of retribution. Atmospheric scientist Dr. Nathan Paldor, professor of dynamical meteorology and physical oceanography at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, author of more than of almost 70 peer-reviewed studies, explains how many of his fellow scientists have been intimidated. And he is quoted as saying, Many of my colleagues with whom I spoke share these views and report on their inability to publish their skepticism in the scientific or public media, end quote. In December 1997, a UN-sponsored conference on global warming was held in Kyoto, Japan, where a number of nations signed an agreement to limit emissions of greenhouse gases. Shortly thereafter, in 1998, another global warming conference was held in Buenos Aires that called on leading industrial nations to reduce their use of energy and their standard of living. In response to these events, nearly 1,700 scientists from the United States signed a petition to the United States government to reject the Kyoto Global Warming Treaty, which it did by, I believe the vote in Congress was 98 to nothing to reject the treaty. But <clears throat> since that time, many more scientists have signed the petition, which now includes the names of more than 31,000 scientists. The petition states in part, we urge the United States government to, this is quoting from the petition signed by these scientists, we urge the United States government to reject the global warming agreement that was written in Kyoto. The proposed limits on greenhouse gases would harm the environment, hinder the advance of science and technology, and damage the health and welfare of mankind. There is no convincing scientific evidence that human release of carbon dioxide, methane, or other greenhouse gases is causing or will in the foreseeable future cause catastrophic heating of the Earth's atmosphere and disruption of the Earth's climate. Moreover, there is substantial scientific evidence that increases in atmospheric carbon dioxide produce many beneficial effects upon the natural plant and animal environments of the earth, end quote. It was also reported by Boston Globe columnist Jeff Jacoby in uh, November of 1998, quote, more than 100, 100 climate scientists have endorsed the Leipzig Declaration, which describes the Kyoto Treaty as dangerously simplistic, quite ineffective and economically destructive. 
The endorsers include prominent scholars, among them David Aubrey of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, Larry Brace of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, meteorologist Austin Hogan, who co-edits the journal Atmospheric Research, Richard Linson, the Sloan Professor of Meteorology at MIT, and Pat Patrick Michaels, a University of Virginia professor and past president of the American Association of State Climatologists, end quote. In a paper published in 2007, a thorough analysis of the IPCC's claims was made. Among the points covered was an observation concerning Chapter 9 of the IPCC's fourth assessment report published in 2007. Chapter 9 was the key chapter because it attributed a change in climate to human activity. The conclusion of the review is, quote, just four reviewers, including one government-appointed team or individual, explicitly endorsed the entire chapter in its draft form. Not thousands of scientists, but four. The claim that the IPCC's fourth assessment report carries the imprimatur of having been reviewed by thousands or even hundreds of expert and independent scientists is incorrect and even riceable, or that is, laughable. In actuality, the report represents the view of small and self-selected science coteries that formed the lead authoring teams. More independent scientists of standing, 61, signed a, letter, signed a public letter to the Prime Minister of Canada cautioning against the assumption of human causation of warming that are listed as authors of the the fourth assessment report, summary for policymakers, which was 52. And it goes, he goes on to say more than 50 scientists also reviewed the independent summary for policymakers, the counter view to the IPCC summary that was published by the Fraser Institute of Canada. So the often heard claim that Nearly all of the world's scientists, virtually all of them, agree with the alarmist global warming agenda is a lie, even though it has been repeated over and over again and is constantly repeated in the media. In an article published November the 5th, 2007, Piers Corbin Astrophysicist and climate scientist of weather action long-range forecasters is quoted as follows, quote, the global warming and climate crisis industry is not science, fact, but science fiction, and the actions they propose will not change weather events or climate one jot, end of quote. Now, there's a great deal of technical information behind these statements but the bottom line is that the climate change alarmist rhetoric having to do with fossil fuels and cows is false. It's highly misleading and potentially very destructive. At the same time, it is true that unwise land management can change, can cause climatic change or change in the weather in, uh, in, uh, in localized areas, but those, those effects are localized and limited. And... Uh, do not affect the global climate in any significant way. But they certainly could affect uh, local areas, even widespread local areas, uh, if uh, land is abused or not uh, managed properly. 
But one of the ironies of the climate change alarmism that we hear so often is that by raising the straw man, so to speak, people are being diverted from the things they actually ought to be doing to ensure favorable weather. In other words, their attention is being directed to a straw man. They're, they're being led down the wrong path by people who have an agenda of their own, which is unsound. And I might mention that many politicians have latched onto that agenda because it can give them leverage to gain greater control over the population. In fact, there's already a lot of talk about forcing people to limit their consumption of meat, among other things. People are being diverted by this false agenda from the things that they ought to be doing to ensure favorable weather. Now, as I said earlier, the climate is always changing. And there are dry years and there are wet years, and there always have been. Famines and years of plenty have occurred throughout history, along with insect plagues, floods, droughts, and other problems. But driving your car less, doing without electricity, eating only vegetables is going to do absolutely nothing to change the climate in any significant way. And that would be true if the entire world did these things. None of these things will make the weather better, nor will they prevent weather-related disasters. Because we, that is humans, have no direct control over the weather. Now, as I mentioned, some of the things humans do can have a limited effect on local weather conditions uh, in terms of land management and so forth. But our ability to control the weather in those ways is, is a virtually nil especially on a global scale. In order to understand what we can do about the weather, we need to understand who actually does control the weather. Now, sometimes Satan is allowed to influence the weather. In the book of Job, we read where God allowed Satan to tempt Job to try his faith. We read in Job 1 and verse 18, a messenger came to Job and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So here was a weather-related disaster that struck the household of Job. And it was caused directly by Satan. But while Satan has a limited power to influence the weather, he can do nothing that God does not allow because God himself has ultimate control over the weather. Now, God does use the natural laws that he has made to govern climate and weather. And not every weather event is necessarily due to a direct act of God in that sense he uses natural laws to govern a lot of those uh, processes but God can intervene when he desires to and he can intervene for example to withhold rain or send rain as he pleases now as we've seen God told Abraham that his descendants would be blessed with favorable weather as part of the covenant promise to Abraham. And on the whole, we've enjoyed a relatively stable climate and favorable weather conditions during our modern history here in the United States and the British Commonwealth nations, and for that matter, worldwide. Although, of course, weather is different depending on where you're at on the globe. And other nations have not been blessed to the same degree. For, the, for example, there have been weather-related famines in various places in the world, 
in the past 200 years, notably in parts of Asia, especially India, and many parts of Africa, and there's still some uh, pockets of famine in Africa and parts of Asia, even as I speak here today. But generally speaking, we've been blessed with decent weather, relatively stable weather, even though we have occasional weather disasters and other setbacks. But God also told the people of Israel, his covenant nation, that continued favor would depend on their obedience to his laws. God said to Israel in Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26 and verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in, in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. But God also warned them in verse 14 of, De of Leviticus 26. God warned them, verse 14, Leviticus 26, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. And then in verse 19, he says, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for you, your land shall not yield its produce nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. End quote. From time to time in Israel's history, as recorded in the Bible, God sent drought and famine upon Israel to correct them that they might return to him in humility and faith. One of those times was during the days of Elijah, the prophet, when Ahab was king of Israel and Ahab was an evil man. And he committed a lot of crimes, led people into idolatry. So we read in 1 Kings 17, verse 1, 17, verse 1 of 1 Kings, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And then in 1 Kings 18 and verse 1, 18 and verse 1, it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, that is the third year of, of, a, drought, of, a, of a drought, saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab and there was a, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. So, God had shut off the windows of heaven in the land of Israel for three years. Actually, in the New Testament, it says it lasted, this, this uh, drought lasted for three and a half years. And uh, as a result, there was severe famine in Samaria, or Samaria being the capital of Israel at that time in the northern kingdom of Israel. So Elijah and Ahab met, after which Elijah destroyed the false prophets and the, the prophets of Baal out of Israel. And then we read in 1 Kings 18, verse 42, 1 Kings 18, verse 42, Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. And it came to pass the seventh time that he said, 
There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising up, rising out of the sea. So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain, end quote. So God turned off the spigot from the windows of heaven, and then three and a half years later, he turned, them, turned it back on. <clears throat> and it was to get Israel's attention, to punish them for their forsaking him and his commandments. Solomon, the king of Israel, understood that God could and would send punishments upon the nation at times because of their disobedience. In a prayer to God at the time of the dedication of the temple, Solomon prayed to God and said, as we read in 1 Kings 8, beginning with verse 35. <clears throat> this is a prayer from Solomon. Quote, When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and sin reign on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance, end quote. God is the one who has the power to send rain when he wills or to withhold it when it pleases him. We read in Job chapter, chapter 5 and verse 8, Job 5 and verse 8, But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. End quote. In Psalm 65 and verse 9, Psalm 65 and verse 9 we read, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness, and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys are also covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. In Psalm 147 and verse 7, Psalm 147 and verse 7, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. And then in Jeremiah 14, verse 22, Jeremiah 14, verse 22, we read, Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait for you since you have made all these. End quote. In the city of Lystra in Asia Minor, Paul, the apostle, advised the people to forsake their idols. And he said to them, as we read in Acts 14, Acts 14 and verse 15, you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, and, and the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and, and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. End quote. Favorable weather, rain to make the food grow, 
and similar blessings are a testimony to God's goodness and his mercy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Matthew 5 and verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So whether people are obeying God or not, whether they're just or unjust, humanity benefits from the blessings of favorable weather when it is favorable. But as we've seen indicated, if we continue in sins, the day will come when the rains will cease to fall. The day will come when the weather will not cooperate. The day will come when the crops will fail or be destroyed. When animals and people will starve as crops wither or as the crops be drowned in floods. And these will be only the beginning of catastrophes for Israel and the peoples of the world. It may not be until God's kingdom is established that we can count on rain in due season every year and similar blessings consistently and abundance for everyone on the face of the earth. But we are assured that when God's kingdom is established, those blessings will be present. We read in Isaiah 30 and verse 19, Isaiah 30 and verse 19, For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left, you will also defile the covering of your graven images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. Then he will give you the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will feed in large pastures. And we read in Joel chapter 2, beginning with verse 18, Joel 2 and verse 18. This is also speaking of the time when God will intervene and establish his kingdom on the earth. It says, the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil and you will be satisfied that by them. I will no longer make you a re reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. He's speaking of the army that will come to try to destroyed Jerusalem at the end of the age. Goes on to say, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord does marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. And he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The, the threshing floors shall be full of wheat. 
and the vat shall overflow with new wine and oil. Meanwhile, it's important that we learn the lesson. It's important that we learn the lesson. We can do something positive about the weather. We can do something positive about the weather. We can obey God.